you know, when, when you do the organizing that really makes a difference in someone's life, they treat you like family and you treat them that way. And when you find out that, you know, their water's not safe or, you know, a facility's going in near them, you wake up every day thinking about it and, and you channel, um, it's like someone is, is, is hurting in your own family. And that's the kind of organizing that, that I've been involved in, in Northeast Pennsylvania. And um, that's what keeps me going. That's Alex Latordo from Northeast Pennsylvania. Alex is one of the three recipients of the Community Sentinel Awards presented by Frack Tracker Alliance. And this is episode two of the Halt the Harm podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Clover. And I'm so excited to have you listening in this early couple episodes as we get this podcast off the ground. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Halt the Harm podcast. Today I'm talking with Alex Latordo. Alex has been the Shale Gas Program Coordinator for Energy Justice Network since 2011. Outside of his professional capacity, he's worked extensively as a volunteer organizer, fighting for environmental justice and communities facing rural poverty. Alex also has a labor union background, has been a union activist in both private and public sectors, is a union delegate for the Industrial Workers of the World, and represents workers in unemployment compensation appeal hearings on a volunteer basis. Alex, welcome to the show. Hello, Ryan. Do you want to fill in any gaps from that intro? Sure. I'm 29 years old. I uh, grew up in Pike County most of my life. That's uh, in northeast Pennsylvania along the Delaware River. And I went to Muhlenberg College, which is a, a school in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And it had, I majored in uh, political science and film studies and a minor in economics and Applied that in 2009 after uh, a job that I, I had planned for after college in a in a company and a human resources office laid off 900 folks and my my opportunity was eliminated. Then too, I moved to Pittsburgh where I um, did an AmeriCorps apprenticeship uh, with a group called Mon Valley Unemployed Committee where I got exposed to uh, a lot of um, labor union. Uh, politics and concerns. I That's where I, I attended a, a couple law classes and was able to uh, start representing folks in their unemployment hearings. And I represented people from service sector, in, in industrial operations, um, even gas workers in their unemployment hearings. Uh, and it was a really eye-opening uh, for me as a, as a new worker, you know, coming into the workforce out of college uh, to see, you know, a lot of the things that I had experienced, you know, just working at restaurants and things growing up and landscaping, uh, that, that employer abuse is widespread. And, uh, and then once I, um, in 2008, I became aware of fracking. Uh, I lived in Pike County where there had been leases signed along the Delaware river. And as many people remember, we, we, we put, all our eggs in one basket and fought really hard to get the Delaware River Basin Commission, which is the that governs the use of the river, to put a moratorium on drilling in Pike and Wayne County, uh, which is where it was most likely to occur in Pennsylvania. In Wayne County, there had been a, about a dozen exploratory wells done uh, in, in 2000, up to 2011. Um, while I was in Pittsburgh, 
Um, we, I was involved in forming a group called Marcellus Protest. Uh, that group was the leading force behind banning drilling in the city. It was the first ban on drilling in the United States and the world. Um, they had leases in a Catholic cemetery in the middle of the city. Chesapeake Energy was leasing in uh, Upper Lawrenceville, was a neighborhood there. And um, so we, uh, it was a really interesting uh, fight at, at an urban level. I moved back uh, to take care of a, a terminal, terminally ill uh, family member in 2011, um, and that's when we fought the Delaware River uh, fight. Um, and I had at, at times been going, as I was getting more and more engaged, getting to Dimmick, Pennsylvania, where I was. I met with residents there uh, who were desperately uh, trying to get clean water to their homes in the form of a water pipeline where uh, 26 homes now have been deemed too toxic to drink the water uh, out of their faucets by the um, Center for Disease Control, which just came out finally this year, actually. But the tests had been done in 2012 by the EPA, and they refused to take action. The Pennsylvania DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, refused to take action. And just, um, you know, the, I guess a highlight of that, that story was two families out of um, the, the community decided to pursue litigation for seven years, uh, all the way to the appeal level of, the fe of a federal jury trial that took place this February. And those two families uh, were able to get uh, an award of $4.24 million from a unanimous jury that still has not been transferred uh, out of an escrow account because there's an appeal from the company, Cabot Oil and Gas. But Energy Justice Network, which is how it has been my capacity um, since about 2011, I've been the shale gas program coordinator. We were able to fiscal sponsor um, legal funds for that trial. We were able to house the attorneys in Scranton at a house where we had uh, previously run a fellowship program. Uh, so it kind of became a law office. Uh, we had um, some, uh, we had meals prepared for the families after every trial that took 18 days of, of, of uh, uh, trial. And um, they were all, and we did the press kit and the press releases and the media uh, press conferences. Um, and it was a really big lift for a small organization that Energy Justice Network at that time uh, was operating on a volunteer basis. Uh, it's, a, it's a situation that we, that we repeatedly see. And I guess this is the reason I want to think one point I wanted to stress in this interview is that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of organizations, uh, big environmental groups, foundations, um, scientists are getting paid a lot of money to study uh, shale field issues, gas issues, uh, or to organize around them, uh, are getting $100,000, $200,000 grants to work on this. The families, when it came down to it in Dimmick, Pennsylvania, who were brave enough to speak out in the movie Gasland and for many years, uh, are still not helped by the wider environmental movement. It still comes down to a, a group of volunteers and when we had the most important federal jury trial, the most important litigation happening related to shale gas in the United States so far, uh, the Dimmick trial uh, came down to crowdfunding on Indiegogo. It came down to uh, two attorneys that did it without pay up front, um, you know, that, that really dug in. Um, to women from New York uh, who volunteered uh, and, and now are waiting for the award before they, they haven't been 
able to get compensated for their time. Um, you know, there was there's staff attorneys at organizations that have been asked for help. Um, and and I guess the, the main message for organizers out there is uh, there's on the most important issues, the most important frontline work. Um, there's not going to be help from big green environmental groups uh, or foundations or from politicians. Uh, we have to organize that support system ourselves. Um, I can give you a dozen other examples. Um, every day I have a daily example of how under-resourced and under-supported uh, organizers are uh, working in the shale. Um, there's, um, you know, Dimmick is probably the most glaring example, um, but everybody knows about it, and there was never, um, there was never a heavy list offered, you know, in terms of, of work workload, uh, relief, um, and still many families have no water in their homes, and the movie Gasland is shown um, on HBO and, you know, in front of classrooms, and those families have still struggle and it's not right right it's not I, environmental justice right i hear i hear what you're saying i mean so yeah there are these organizations whose uh business or you know staff and administration and fundraising campaigns and everything that they're doing is built around the struggles of these everyday people yet these people their needs aren't being met even if other people's salaries are getting paid by this struggle. Because this struggle exists, people have salaries, but these people who live there don't. And it, and it doesn't have to be money to support what we do in the front lines. Um, you, know, you know, I look at uh, characters in the movement like Michael Brune, who's the head of the Sierra Club. He's in meetings, he's in green rooms before events with Barack Obama and Gina McCarthy, the EPA administrator. Um, you know, we have leaders in the, in the Democratic Party that are getting endorsed by Michael Bruhn and the Sierra Club that are not doing their job when it comes to gas. They're actually proliferating fracking across the country in the form of EPA rules that have related to gas that are totally inadequate or bolster or prioritize building natural gas power plants um, that don't ratchet down the emissions from compressor stations that are set in our backyards. In Susquehanna County, there's 42 compressor stations in the county. Um, a new rule just came out, the methane rule that was widely celebrated by the, by the Sierra Club, and it's totally inadequate. It doesn't require things like electric motors that reduce the amount of exhaust that comes out and gives kids asthma in their homes. Um, you know, things that are policy that are discussed, whether it's legislation, regulation at the federal level or state level, um, needs to be informed by the by the concerns of people who live on the ground, uh, not who sit in tall buildings in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Um, and when now we have Tom Steyer, who is um, a billionaire who worked for Farallon Capital. If you look at Farallon Capital, he um, made a lot of his money on pipelines. Master Limited Partnerships were his bread and butter and investment. He's dumping $25 million into the election in Pennsylvania. And he's supporting Hillary Clinton and Katie McGinty, Katie McGinty for senator. And she's been a terrible DEP secretary in Pennsylvania. She worked directly for the gas industry. Uh, there's a there's a 
right up on energyjusticesummer.org is our website. I just um, I assembled a blog post with all of her record. Um, she permitted all the wells in Dimmick that were that were poisoned people's water, and she ruined a lot of people's lives. And she's running for senator, and she's gotten the endorsement of the Sierra Club, Tom Steyer, and millions of dollars from him. Clean Water Action, Penn Environment, which is a wing of Environment America, and League of Conservation Voters. In the meantime, people are sitting in their homes or bathing in their bathing their children in water that is not. And the person who did it, who permitted those wells, is running for senator and getting the endorsement of every single big environmental group in Pennsylvania. So this and is it's like really, a... really sad. Yeah, this is a, a major contradiction, and you're saying it's. It's not just money. It's not just you know support these people with money, but you're saying that these big environmental groups have a responsibility also to you know include the voices and experience of these actual people who are on the front lines who are experiencing the impacts of these issues. Include them in their policy decisions, their endorsements. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's, there's no nuance whatsoever in how they. Them. There's no constructive criticism, you know, that the endorsements of these politicians, like the Hillary Clinton endorsement by the Sierra Club, has no criticism whatsoever of her, of her position on shale gas. Right. Um, it's a it's a tragic tragic. Uh, it's it's like a Greek tragedy, you know. It's like you're watching the downfall of this Greek hero who thinks they're doing the right thing. The green the green groups think they're doing the right thing and they're fighting a the good fight from their offices. In Washington, D.C., it looks great what they're doing. But from the ground, on the ground, nothing is changing. Nothing is getting better. And I'm sure that's frustrating as well for many of the staff who work with these big greens. I mean, absolutely. It's, and it has to do with the leadership, and it also is generational. I right, have to say, right. you know, I never, I never meet somebody who's in their 20s or early 30s who thinks that Dimmick shouldn't get the help that they deserve or, or communities across the country should be things from compressor stations that or, or gas power plants. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a calculation that happens somehow when you get jaded enough to believe that gas is a bridge fuel for coal um, to get rid of, you know, coal. And I think I, I'll use an example, you know, from the labor movement. You know, if there was a Democrat running in some state across the country that supported right-to-work legislation, getting rid of all unions, right? Uh, just because they're a Democrat doesn't mean they would get the endorsement of the AFL-CIO or any of the unions, of right? Course. Because right-to-work legislation is fatal. It's fatal for the labor movement. Uh-huh. For the environmental movement. And we should not be supporting Democrats, anyone, any politician who supports that. What, no matter, I don't care if they want to give free kittens to everybody. You know, it's like they could have the best policy on, any, on anything else. But but we're sacrificing Northeast Pennsylvania. There's 10,000 wells drilled in the last eight years in Pennsylvania, and there's 32 proposed gas power plants. Um, like I said, you know, there's thousands of miles of pipelines that need compressor stations, uh, waste facilities. You know, that all has to be put into Northeast Pennsylvania. And we already take most of New York City and Philadelphia's garbage. We take, uh, we, we have power lines and we generate power from nuclear facilities that have, been, that have been built over the years. Historically, we mined the coal that heated New York City and powered New York City. We've 
we clear cut 98% of our forests in the 1800s to build New York City and Philadelphia. We've done our, we've paid our price. And if, if leaders in, in urban areas and among big greens and the Democratic Party want to look to North, Northeast Pennsylvania and say, what, what else can we take? What else can these people uh, breathe? What else can we make these people drink? Uh, that's not acceptable. And, uh, you know, if, they, if, if New York City had offshore wind turbines off of Manhattan uh, uh, and they had solar panels on every rooftop and they were recycling 90% of their garbage, you know, I would think differently about them. Um, but that's not the priority. The priority is let's see what Pennsylvania can, what can we, what quality of life can we diminish in Pennsylvania for our own quality of life? And it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's the mindset of a, of a, of a uh, colonial empire, you know, the, 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 the left coast and the, and the, um, the New York City and Philadelphia region uh, just expect us to keep giving and giving and giving. Um, and it's not, it's not right. And, and that's been my frustration that um, we can't even get endorsements to sound a little critical of these politicians, never mind get the resources that we need to do the organizing to fight this stuff. Um, and it's, you know, I, the, the best thing that keeps me going, I think we, we were going to talk about that, is, is the people up here are very gracious and respectful. And, you know, when, when you do the organizing that really makes a difference in someone's life, they treat you like family and you treat them that way. And when you find out that, you know, their water's not safe or, you know, a facility's going in near them, you wake up every day thinking about it and, and you channel, um, it's like someone is, is, is hurting in your own family. And that's the kind of organizing that, that I've been involved in, in Northeast Pennsylvania. And, um, that's what keeps me going. It's not, um, it's not because I'm getting a lot of support from outside. Um, you know, we've had foundations turn down all, almost all of our grants that we've ever applied for. Um, you know, there's not a lot of support here. And so we're, we work full-time jobs and do this as a, as a side gig, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. A side gig that's critically important. That's tied to everyday health and survival. So I imagine that that some people listening to this program could also be working within larger environmental groups and might be really resonating with you, but also feeling stuck or frustrated or their hands are tied. Do you work with anyone who works within any of the big greens that you do feel an alliance with? I do. And I have to say that recently, in the last couple of years, the leadership in the Pennsylvania chapter of the Sierra Club has changed. We have a wonderful chapter president named Joanne Kilgour, who has been relating our concerns. Um, and there's um, there's activists in the Sierra Club who run for the, the political committees that elect and nominate or that uh, endorse candidates for election. There are club leaders, uh, uh, no, local group leaders that have. Uh, power to vote and introduce resolutions at the state the, the state meetings. The Sierra Club of all of them is the most democratic, uh, and actually provides people a place to, to to have some dissent of the leadership. And we've seen over the years Sierra Club take a a pretty big turn towards uh, being against gas, 
Um, unfortunately, the policy, such as the clean power plan, lean heavily on, on gas as a transition fuel from coal. Um, and I think nailing that down and being nuanced when we talk about these EPA rules, not every EPA rule is worth supporting. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that the Sierra Club generates in terms of public comment, um, you know, lobby days, things like that, that, that need to be, um, I mean, some of these organizers, some of the big staff need to be put on a leash and stop um, praising the, the administration as much. Um, of a, uh, you know, that, that would be something that, you know, that voice inside those groups would be a tremendous help. Um, and that, that's something that somebody could do if they're a part of the Sierra Club. Uh, if they donate to those groups, if they make donations, uh, that's another way to, to make your donation contingent on getting answers and, um, and uh, you know, input, for, you know, forcing the leadership to, to gather input from their, from their donors before they make decisions. Um, NRDC accepts donations, Natural Resources Defense Council. They really need to hear from people who support them about how terrible gas is. Um, it's hard to get, it, 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 I can't um, get through to them uh, by myself. And so, um, and it's, it's, it's literally um, destroying our communities that, because they're not acting. So the more we can get um, help from those big greens and foundations and political leadership, if you're connected to the Democratic Party, um, I don't work within the Democratic Party very much. Um, but there, I know there are mechanisms to to change the party platforms. Pennsylvania Democratic Party supports a moratorium on fracking. <clears throat> that was something that we got um, uh, passed. Uh, some activists in Pennsylvania got passed three years ago. Um, and the other thing is, if you're in a union, um, you know unions need can take positions too, um, especially educators. Um, the the faculty union at state universities in Pennsylvania supports a, a no drilling on campus as a resolution they passed. Um, so those are things that we can that you can work on on getting this issue raised in uh, in your community in your your organization. I want to hear more about the Dimmick Federal Jury Trial and um, an Energy sure. Justice Network. Can you take us back and and tell us that story? Sure. So we had, I had been working in, in Dimmick, Pennsylvania. It's about 2009. It's the first time I met folks up there. Um, it was a similar story to what we were seeing in southwestern Pennsylvania, where I was living outside of Pittsburgh. We, we had a um, similar story of water contamination. Uh, so I felt really, and it was connected to my home region, and it was on my local news. Um, when... Now, there's been a lot of groups that have helped uh, at Dimmick. What we've uh, seen over the years, though, is when, there, when Gasland came out in 2010, everybody knew about Dimmick's story. It was featured, millions of people saw that story on, on HBO and in their communities, um, especially in the environmental movement. What they needed right away was a legal team to help them, not just in courts, but also in dealing with the governor's administration of Ed Rendell, the Democrat who was in charge then, uh, and the DEP. And we, we needed 
competent legal minds to, to sit across a table from the company and the, the government to talk about building a water line to that community. Um, we needed, uh, and we did need legal representation. There was a lawsuit filed in 2009 that took till 2016 to finally get a verdict. Um, that's how long it took to litigate this. Um, the families that came on board in that litigation saw uh, at least half a dozen attorneys come in and out of their case. And that case didn't just include a, um, a legal a, a lawsuit. It also included an administrative appeal of the, of the determination of the DEP to allow Cabot to stop drilling or stop providing water. Um, and there were a lot of things that uh, these folks were facing uh, just on a legal end of things. And that's where, you know, we needed a hero from, from someone like the Sierra Club or someone from NRDC uh, who did represent in the administrative hearing, but uh, let the residents talk about how good or bad that went. Uh, it seemed we needed uh, a long-term assistance there. And it, it was something that an organization could put on their grants and put on their, um, you know, put in their on their resume as an organization that they help this community. High-profile contamination cases is like Love Canal almost. You know how high-profile it was. And so, um, getting into 2014, uh, it became clear that we needed to raise 50 to 60 grand uh, to pay for depositions and affidavits and expert witnesses. Um, because it was a lawsuit against the company Cabot Oil and Gas ordered or asked the judge to have depositions held in Houston, Texas. So we had to fly the residents down with expert witnesses and get hotel rooms. And we started um, Energy Justice Network had a summer program in 2000. Well, we had 14 and 15 uh, summer program and, and some fellows throughout the semesters that worked very hard on social media to, to help fundraise uh, using Indiegogo as a crowdfunding website, um, that amount of money. We also worked very hard writing personal letters and appeals to wealthy donors. Uh, some we felt, um, you know, had kind of turned their back on Dimmick and had promised some help before, and we, we wanted to make sure that they, they could donate, cover the costs. And then, honestly, the residents went into an immense amount of personal debt. Um, to, to pay for the legal costs. By February, uh, when the trial date was, uh, was there, uh, was coming up, uh, we had prepared, uh, we had raised the money we needed. We had set up a, a law office in our house in Scranton. Uh, we had a, um, that we were renting from a Dimmick resident to help fundraise from the case. Uh, we had also um, uh, developed uh, a whole campaign plan um, depending on whether or not the trial succeeded and what we were going to do to try to, and then we worked in the, with the families to, to get food served on the table every day after trial so that they could help prepare for the next day. We had just a lot of direct support uh, that we provided, but, but the, our two staff that we had were both volunteer and worked full-time jobs uh, <laughs> besides what we were doing. So. Um, so that was something that uh, we ultimately, the verdict came down, eight jurors agreed that Cabot had caused the water contamination endemic. They, the $4.24 million was, was set aside in an escrow account pending an appeal, 
which we're waiting on now, if the judge sets aside the verdict and calls a new trial, he has to raise a lot more money. If he agrees with us, Cabot will appeal to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a federal level uh, appeal. It's another, we're at a magistrate now, it'll go up to a, a circuit court uh, uh, judge to look at the transcripts of the trial. And if he orders that the trial be remanded back for another trial or that he overturns the verdict based on whatever Cabot's arguing in terms of uh, mistrial or things like that, then it would the, the verdict money would never come. So, but in the in the court of public opinion, we did succeed. Cabot is widely known to have caused the contamination endemic in our communities. That's great because we're not criticized for saying that anymore. It's in it, it was in the headlines, and it also just came out again in the Center for Disease Control. The APSDR is a division of of the CDC uh, deemed the 26 wells that were studied by EPA too contaminated to drink from. So we have data, we have affirmation from two branches of government um, that at the highest levels that, that agree that, that this happened, you know, which has been, been hard to just argue that it happened. Um, a lot of the companies have been saying they had nothing to do with it. And that's the case across the country. That's what they say. So if it hadn't been for Energy's Justice Network, the trial wouldn't have taken place. Um, and those residents would not be potentially getting this award. And $4.24 million doesn't go very far because there's still no water line to the families. There's no municipal water line. It would take a nine-mile water line that costs $12.5 million uh, to provide water to those homes and residents would pay for their own hookups and pay the water bill like a you know city water you know it's a it's an option for them and I think um, that's our next step if we ultimately prevail at every appeal um, the governor of Pennsylvania is a Democrat governor wolf his um, chief of staff was previously Katie McGinty who was a DEP secretary running for um, Senate. Uh, John Hanger was a DEP secretary, was secretary of policy and planning, just resigned his position there. But the, the governor's administration has environmental minds in it and should be aware that this is an easy fix. $12.5 million to build a water line in rural Pennsylvania is peanuts compared to what they spend in Philadelphia, what they spend in Pittsburgh. And people without clean water in a rural area are just their lives are just as important and their health is just as important as somebody drinking their water in a major city. Um, and that's something we need to stress. We hope that the verdict and the CDC's report helps inform the governor in that decision. But um, the, the precedent needs to be set that when the gas companies, there's been 281 notices of determination served by the DEP that the gas companies had polluted people's groundwater, a uh, groundwater source. And that's, um, you can Google DEP uh, determination letters to read those. Um, but the state is aware and admits that this is happening, but there's no protocol to get permanent water supplies to these homes. The, the, the general response is deliver cases of bottled water. The, comp the DEP will tell the uh, company, deliver cases of bottled water, fill up water buffaloes, which are 500-gallon tanks, um, and people and hook it, plumb it into their house, and they'll you know, fill the water buffalo once a week or twice a week. Um, 
but that's not a permanent fix. It's not a solution that allows someone to sell their home if they want to leave. It diminishes their property value completely. And, uh, and it doesn't, and people with farms and livestock can't, can't have livestock anymore, you know, or, or safely you can't company isn't delivering for goats and cows and chickens. It's delivering for, for humans. So there's a, there's a lot of impacts there. Um, and that's, that's our goal is to get that water line built in Dimmick and then out to other communities. Um, there's, there's two other water contamination case cases that are within nine miles of Montrose, uh, where this water supply, there's a reservoir there that we're trying to, to get plumbed, uh, Franklin Forks and Bridgewater Township. There's two other contaminations that we need to address, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where people are living of that, that well, water in their faucet. And this, especially right now, we're hearing about so many pipelines or so many different pipelines being built. There's so many proposed pipelines. There's so many struggles against pipelines. And, uh, and you're talking about running water and the sort of lack of support of building lines to bring water as opposed to lines to bring gas. Yeah, and, and I, I do appreciate and I do fight pipelines. Um, I think it's important that communities where there is a gas pipeline going in, especially in New York State, where you have Governor Cuomo just uh, denied the streams crossing permit that the state has to give for the Constitution pipeline. Our co- the company we're fighting is Cabot Oil and Gas. The driller was a major investor in that pipeline, and they were expecting it to come online to ship their gas out of Dimmick and surrounding areas in Susquehanna County to New England. And because that pipeline's not moving forward currently, that's really putting a punch in the face to these to get the drillers that wanted to use the pipeline. And and if it hadn't been for New York organizers, um, unfortunately, the, the resources to fight that pipeline, although 25 miles of it was in Pennsylvania, were, were, were dominated by New York groups. Um, you know, we were able to get some folks in Pennsylvania opposed to it. Um, that's another story, but... And I think that that's important for for us is to see uh, those pipelines fought. And the other thing, I mean, the most important thing that's not getting addressed are gas powered gas fired power plants. Um, there's a technology called combined cycle natural gas power plants. It's uh, they use steam and heat turbines, and it's it, the EPA is lauding it and supporting it as the most clean base load generation fuel for our electricity grid. And the problem isn't, first of all, that it's not clean. And if you suck the exhaust out of a gas power plant, you're not, you're not going to survive, right? If you put your face over it and, you know, it's, it's, it's toxic fumes and it still needs gas and compressor station to run and the drilling down up, upstream from the, uh, from the plant. So we have, um, you know, it's like I said, 32 proposals in Pennsylvania, over 300 across the country, and they're mostly in small towns. Um, you know, some are in urban communities, but they're they're large facilities. Um, you know, they're 1,500 megawatt. It's the biggest I've seen here, and um, we need to change the narrative of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, and whoever the next you know whoever the next president is. But I'm you know I think that that's that the environmental groups need to take that issue on front and center. It's not just about getting solar panels and wind. If these gas power plants come online, 
it will be life. I am fighting gas drilling in, in northeast Pennsylvania because we have the most abundant source of methane in the Marsalis shale. Um, we have shale that's four or 500 feet thick. And that's what they want. That's what they want to power those power plants. So if you fight those power plants, you're really, you're really helping us out. And uh, the, the fight starts in the trenches of the, the ranks of the Sierra Club, which supports the clean power plan. Uh, has been uncritical of gas in that plant. Uh, turned out hundreds and hundreds of their members to public hearings to, to, to rally for the plan by the EPA. And um, that needs to change. And um, I'm not interested in spending the rest of my life fighting this. If if, um, if we could please talk about gas in the clean power plant and in our energy mix, uh, it's really important that we do that. And it needs to be aggressive. And there's a lot of ground to make up, a lot of slack uh, that, you know, groups like Energy Justice and, and, and frontline groups have been pulling uh, and towing the line for for these big greens. Um, that's important that we fight gas power plants as well as pipelines. And that would be kind of the top priority for me if I could tell anyone if they're looking to fight something, um, that would be a, a good good place to start. Tell us a little about the moment that you realized that these issues were important. So who were you then and what was it that came up? When I was in college, we're talking about environmental issues. Um, I was always an anti-war organizer and I, Pennsylvania was the first state to have free health care for kids, CHIP. And uh, when I was a kid, I was on that. So I was always a social justice organizer. When I heard about drilling proposed in the Delaware River Basin, I was in the senior college, 2008. And the first thing we there was a there was a news station called WNEP, is our local news, had water wells exploding in Dimmick on, on New Year's Day, 2009. And um, before that, there had been in this in the fall of 2008 and September and October, there were stories about. Um, about water growing dab there. Arlen Specter was our senator, and he came to my campus, and uh, I dressed up like a college Republican, took a video of him, asking him, you know, which side is he on, the gas companies or the people who need clean water? And that <laughs> was, was kind of like the, the first thing I did. But, the, but, you know, I fished growing up in the Lackawaxen River, which is still under attack. It's not, not, not by drilling, but by pipeline. Um, that there were leases underneath the river, like the leased acreage that included the river and underneath it. Um, you know, it's a place, it's a beautiful river. It goes from, um, you know, above Homesdale, Pennsylvania, down to the Delaware River and, uh, in Pike County. And um, when I saw the, the lease map in Pike County for the first time, our, our county offices kept of all the leases that were signed by Chesapeake Energy. And I saw that map and it just broke my heart because I thought, how could anyone, and also there's a state park called Promised Land State Park in Pike County. And there was a lease right in the middle where there's a hunting club in the middle that's private. And I was like, how can anyone look at that place? You know, that's where the Civilian Conservation Corps built all these beautiful buildings and beaches and trails and bridges across the waterfalls and stuff. Um, and look at that place and see a, a five acre 
industrial um, you know well pad with a, with a giant drilling rig and toxic pits and you know that's not that's not how I see where I live um, where the Poconos in there in that area uh, a welcome mat for for Pennsylvania for a long time people coming from New York and New Jersey come there to, to seek refuge from hectic life of, of the city and it just broke my heart that anyone would, would walk onto that land and look out and see that kind of development there instead of the natural area that was there. Uh, it's still there. There was no drilling in the Delaware Basin that far south. Um, but um, I'm, we're extremely lucky to have drinking water supplies for Philadelphia and New York City and Delaware River. Uh, if, I, don't, I don't think that we would have been considered a place to protect had we not been... Uh, supplying drinking water to those major cities. I think where we're rural Pennsylvania, most most people couldn't even point at us on a map. Especially our legislators in our state capital in Harrisburg don't even think don't don't think of our area very much or very highly. And so that really hit me. I felt, um, you know, for the first time, you know, um, I was a I was in an area that I, I could speak for, and, and I was a—I had grown up there, and um, I still connect. You know, even though Susquehanna County is two two counties over, you know, working there is not unlike the way of life I had in Pike County growing up. And a lot of people—they have big hearts. You know, trust is a is a currency for people in their town. Uh, I think if you think, if you can't be trusted, you're may as well be poor on the street because people won't do anything for you. They won't look out for you. And um, I think I've been able to build a lot of trust there. And that makes me feel proud, uh, even though, you know, there's been 17,000 workers laid off in the gas industry in the last two years because of the downturn in drilling. Uh, you know, there's widespread uh, poverty. Uh, people are, are struggling our other industries like tourism, recreation, agriculture, bluestone, um, you know, things like that have been suffering in the wake of the gas industry as well. And so there's um, I'm kind of at a pivotal moment. Susquehanna County just decided to do their comprehensive plan since 2003. They haven't had a new plan for the county. So there's an opportunity there to do some visioning with the communities and see what they would like to have with that in the beginning it was it's like what can we take from you instead of what would you like <laughs> you know well how would you like to spend your eight-hour days working um most a lot of a lot of people would say farming or you know in a, in a safe place to work that uh, provides a living wage you know that's not uh, that's not a radical thing to, to want um and unfortunately we got the gas industry and the abuses that came with it when you started getting involved with environmental issues, did that change your relationships with friends and family? It did. And that, I think, had a lot to do with the way the, the issue was originally presented by the environmental, the issue of fracking as just an environmental issue, just toxins, just toxins in the air, you know, toxins in the water. And I think once people in my family realized that I was working with people who were just like them, you know, with, with kids running around the house, they're on the phone with DEP all day, 
you know, these are people who who run errands or veterans that need rides to the to, to the veterans, the VA. Um, you know, when I would tell stories to my friends and family and about the folks who are, who are struggling there, you know, I think that it that's what's needed. And, and I think you can't, there's no substitute for that. Um, if you're working on the issue of fracking, you really need to get to know these folks and build a relationship in the front lines, uh, the people who are losing their land to eminent domain for pipeline. Um, you know, those are, you know, priceless stories that, are being lost in our movement because in Pennsylvania, there's not a single paid staff person collecting those stories for the wider audience in the environmental movement. Um, the larger environmental groups have never had an office here uh, or never really spent a lot of time here. Um, you know, and those stories are lost in their lobbying and their national storytelling. Um, you know, I, I do thank, you know, Josh Fox put that documentary out but you can't make a documentary every day. Stories change all the time. And um, we really need people to to multiply these, these stories in the media and get them out and the personal stories. And I think that that protects our organizers like me, you know, socially when it's in the news and everyone around me has seen the news and they, they're aware of the story. Um, they don't think of me as an enemy or an outsider, you know, and I'm, I'm not really an outsider. I just, I, you know, my family hasn't been here for five generations, so it's, it makes me an outsider. You know, that's the, some of the mentality, right? <laughs> so, um, but I think that, um, yeah, and, and I guess there are a lot of personal relationships. I mean, the tragedy that you see on a regular basis here affects your your state of mind and I've been in and out of, of some depressions. I think that I would still be in some pretty powerful uh, relationships. Uh, maybe even started a family at this point if I hadn't gotten involved all this time. You know, it's been eight years. Um, I think that I would have had a, a heck of a lot more fun not working on this. Um, but I made the best of it. And I don't regret working on it. I think, um, you know, I, I miss uh, I miss some people in my life that I used to, to hang out with. Um, I just either don't have time or I was too, you know, too hardened by this work um, to appreciate when they were in my life. And, um, you know, that's something that I... I uh, I think about it every day. You know, if I had been uh, affected by some of these tragedies, that um, you know, how would I be different as a person, and who would be in my life? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it takes a toll. Trying to be the best person I can be, you know. Mm. So yeah, yeah, you've been, you've been organizing. You've been busy. I imagine, really busy. So it sounds like sometimes because I'm focusing on and learning about and like right there on the front lines with a really urgent issue. And then I hang out with other people and and it feels like everything's fine. Like everybody's just, you know, talking about the latest, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. 
Yeah, it's like, everybody's like walking around playing Pokemon Go or something. Yeah, the latest the latest trend or the latest fad. And and I know that I need to relax sometimes. I I know that that's important. And we can't always be like engaged in the in the fight in the struggle. But it's hard. It's hard sometimes to feel alone in it. And and, and I guess the only if I was to give a metaphor to it, it'd be like hanging out in a house and you're watching the sink overflow like it's the water's running and like the sink is like flooding or something and you're kind of like oh my god we got to do something about this and everybody else is like what are you talking about <laughs> everything's fine <laughs> it's like you're being, the you're faucet s- is broken off and it's just spraying into the ceiling at this point <laughs> yeah and, um, <laughs> and, you're, and, and you're like trying to sound the alarm and people and then i mean one of the worst things too is as people are like, oh, you know, you're just, you know, you're an activist, like you're into this activist stuff. Like it's a hobby. Like it's not something that impacts all of us. <laughs> well, there's two things that I think about. There's a poet named George Sears, and he was one of the original writers for the magazine Field and Stream. And he lived in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, which is Pennsylvania Grand Canyon area. If you've never been, it's a great place to go. Um, but he wrote uh, poems about, you know, he was a loner. This guy, you know, he lived out in a, in a bark shack that he, for many years, before he got married or did anything, you know, in his personal life, he just, like, made a canoe and, like, carried it from stream to stream just to see where the streams went and, like, made a map. It was really popular at the, out there in the middle of the woods. He's like the Tarot of, uh, of Pennsylvania. Talks about... You know, his love, his, his, his lover is this sylvan goddess that he is with every day that gives him this bounty of resources in, in, in forest. And he, he sees like Pennsylvania as a, as a, as a lover, as a, as a companion in all of this. And he lived in the time when there were no forests left. Uh, and what was there had, had was new growth after all the logging companies had cleared 98% of our forests and, and floated them down on rafts downstream for, for shipbuilding and city construction and stuff and fuel for homes, you know, home heating. And he, you know, he's just got this very dramatic, he's also very anti-exploitation uh, of the environment. You know, his poems are really great. His, his book is free of poems. If you look at George Sears, he's not always politically correct. He's writing in the 1880s, but uh, but that that analogy of like I feel that way when I drive from county to county, meeting people, uh, I look up and there's we have huge ridges and we have, we, the region is called the Endless Mountains region. And you look out and you just see for days like going, um, you could see forever sometimes. And it's that beautiful that even though there's, I know there's well pads and pipelines around, um, I feel like I'm not alone. Even if I am alone in the car or I'm alone uh, at a, you know, at a meeting, um, that's something that I've always uh, helped, has always helped me. Um, that I'm also in a place of history. You know, we have a social movement that will be remembered, that will be talked about and analyzed for many generations. And, we also have younger generations coming up, new organizers that need to be engaged, and 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 I enjoy doing that. You know, absent having a stable personal life and uh, 
you know, it's it's been a, a joy has come from from growing my my personal relationship and my relationships with Pennsylvania, um, you know, across my organizing, and uh, that helps. But um, I want to ask one more question, yeah. which is, what are your what are your hopes for the environmental movement in this region right now? I hope that we start to think about building a permanent infrastructure of either coalitions or networking that meets on a regular basis where we, we kind of catalog all the experiences we've had, who knows what. Uh, I think there needs to be a, an asset map, it's called, it's, it's kind of a corporate word, but something that... You know, if, if we don't have to start from scratch every time. I got, I just got an email from Horseheads in New York. There's a compressor station proposed on the Millennium Pipeline. They want a fact sheet uh, on compressor stations. I can do that. Um, how they found me, I have no idea. Um, but the, you know, the, um, there needs to be kind of a, a more more casework done. Uh, and I hope that we'd have paid staff to do it. Um, to, to manage and connect everybody who's doing this organizing. I know um, in some cases, uh, Catskill Mountain Keepers really stepped in in a big way, but I, in Pennsylvania, we don't have an organization like that. Um, the Delaware River Keeper is the closest thing we have, and they only work in that one river basin. Um, so we're, that's, those are some things I'd like to see. And I guess the other thing is just um, more support for people who are working on the front lines. Um, and honoring their stories when we do lobbying and, and when I hear people cheer for Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, I look at Dimmick and I'm like, that's, that's Barack Obama's responsibility. And he failed those people. Those people's lives have been ruined under his administration. You know, and I know people personally who, you know, have had federal eminent domain cases come down from Obama appointed judges. And we need to reframe how we talk about politics. Um, and, and regulation and things like that to, to really honor the experiences of people who face so much tragedy as a result of these leaders. And we can't let leadership in our environmental movement get away with uh, toasting uh, Barack Obama in the back room of a, of a Bruce Springsteen concert, you know, like Michael Brune did, you know, <laughs> that's something he posted on Facebook. And I was just appalled that, you know, that's the kind of relationship he has with, with the person that should be, shrinking away when Michael Brune walks into a room. Barack Obama should be avoiding all conversation whatsoever because he's going to get railed against for some, some environmental issue. You know, that's how labor movement has, has developed. Uh, you know, they've been a fighting force in our, in our country for a long time. They don't put up with that kind of stuff. You know, they, there's more grit and I, and I hope the environmental movement takes a lesson from labor too on that is just to be a little bit more, uh, gritty and and uh, fighting and uh, you're not as nice. <laughs> we're really we're too nice. Take a really strong stance. Yep. So, if someone's listening and they want to support folks who are on the local grassroots frontlines level, what what might that look like? If they don't know anybody directly themselves, what's a way that that someone who sort of identifies as an environmentalist or is involved on, on some level, how, how can they, like, where can they find a way to, to support those people? 
sure quickly, I, I think some Facebook pages that would be nice to follow and help, you know, I mean, as simple as sharing our social media posts uh, would be one thing. Uh, folks want to look at Energy Justice Network's page, although um, it, it posts, there's posts about a lot of other energy industries, uh, but that's a great place to look for information. Um, the, I guess I'm on Halt the Harm radio broadcast, but I know that Halt the Harm's working hard to get those stories out. There's a booklet called Friends at the Harmed that you can order. That was done in Western Pennsylvania, cataloging our experiences in in Pennsylvania. There's two volumes now. Um, that's photos and documentation of the water contamination, things like that, that you can present to your friends. And to really hold your organizations wherever you sit, whether you're on a church board or ministry or a union steward or um, environmental group or even in the Democratic Party or places, things like that, just to keep people talking about current events of our of our movement and getting them to to reframe the conversation that, that shale gas is not a bridge fuel for coal. Um, that's a really important story to tell and um, that we shouldn't be sacrificed in Northeast Pennsylvania or anywhere for this um, for this resource. Great. Thanks so much, Alex, for coming on the show. And I'll include everything that you referenced in our show notes so folks who are listening can, can look that up and get in touch and follow what you're up to. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Take care, Ryan. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Thanks so much. All right, see you later. All right, that wraps up episode two of the Health the Harm podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, find out more information about Health the Harm Network and all the services provided at healththeharm.net. And read the and check out the show notes for this episode at ecodefenseradio.org slash healththeharmpodcast. podcast.